0: A putrid pool of miscreants. That's the coroner's description of the men who abducted and murdered two Sydney nurses almost 40 years ago. But scathing words were all he could give the victims' families, finding only one person responsible who is now dead. Renee Henry reports. It's taken 39 years, but now families can blame someone. Wayne Boogie Hilton, who had a propensity for rape, even confessed to a friend, but died in a car crash in 1986.
1: You are all cowards. The whole lot of you cowards.
0: The inquest found Sydney nurses Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans were killed in an unprovoked, violent, vicious attack mounted to satiate the perverse sexual dysfunction of a despicable gang of thugs, kidnapped while hitchhiking, then murdered at Murphy's Creek. The state coroner said undoubtedly others from a putrid pool of miscreants were involved but found insufficient evidence to pursue charges. The inquest had identified seven persons persons of interest, all from two extended families, but only three are still alive. Terence O'Neill, Alan Neil Laurie and Desmond Hilton maintaining their innocence. I think now they're the ones that are going to, have to look over their shoulder to see who's pointing the finger, pointing the fist at them. Coroner Michael Barnes offered the families his sincere condolences, describing Wendy and Moraine as happy, popular young women with the brightest of futures. It was the fight by relatives that had the cold case reopened. They're devastated. No one will face trial. I don't think they'll be able to walk down the street now
1: and feel comfortable.
0: But take comfort knowing they did their best. We might not have a conviction, but we've got names named in the public domain and we've got family shame. Renee Henry, 10 News.
2: Hi guys, welcome to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. As always, thank you for joining us. Before we get started on the episode, as always, we would like to thank our Patreons for their support. We've still got a huge list of Patreons who have supported us that we are trying to get through. So to continue that, a big thank you to Nick F, Ruth, Candy, James, Tessa, Claire W, Ben, Ashley, Josie, Lauren, Jessica and Alyssa. Thanks for your support, guys. It is much appreciated. This week's case is a special request from a listener. We're going to keep her identity confidential, but we did want to say thank you for putting us on to this series of cases. We hope that with time there is more information to come to light about these cases. With that, I'll pass you over to Bill to get us started on this week's episode.
1: Thanks, Harry. In the late 1960s and 70s, hitchhiking or thumbing a ride represented a free-spirited and trusting time in our history. It wasn't unusual along the Gold Coast Highway on Australia's east coast to see young people hitching a ride to save money on bus fares and petrol. On the 5th of October 1973, 19-year-old Gabrielle Ingrid Jank and 15-year-old Michelle Anne Riley Made a fateful decision to hitch a ride from Brisbane to the Gold Coast. Like many young people, they hadn't wanted to use their money to pay for a taxi, opting to hitchhike instead.
2: Depending on which report you read, they were last seen alive either getting ready at Michelle's house or getting out of a black and white taxi near Brisbane at approximately 10am on the 6th of October 1973. Gabrielle was a lovely girl who came from a big family and was the eldest child of Mr. and Mrs. Jank. She was older sister to Roland, Robbie, Ziggy, Barbara, and three year old Tammy. A week later, on the 13th of October at 8am, Gabrielle was sadly discovered deceased off the Gold Coast Highway, also known as the M1, down an embankment at Ormo, Queensland. Gabrielle looked like she had been callously thrown down the embankment.
1: She was wearing a black caftan dress with white flowers, which had been pulled up to expose her black bra, no concern for her dignity. Her underwear had been removed, which immediately raised red flags for potential sexual assault. A week after the discovery of Gabrielle's body, Michelle was also discovered deceased, approximately 12 metres off Camp Cable Road in Logan Home, Queensland, on the 24th of October, 1973. Like Gabrielle, Michelle's clothes were pulled up and she was left without the dignity that she deserved. Both Gabrielle and Michelle had been raped before being murdered.
2: Gabrielle's friends remember her as a beautiful, lovely girl and remember her disappearance as an extremely emotional and devastating time of their lives to this day. Sadly, Gabrielle and Michelle were not the first and would not be the last young women to go missing in the area. The previous year, in July 1972, two young women, Robin Hohenville-Bartram, aged 19, and Anita Cunningham, aged 18, had decided against taking a plane from Melbourne to Queensland, opting for the more exciting option of hitchhiking. Sadly, 4 months later in November 1972, Robin's remains were found in a dry, shallow grave under a bridge at Sensible Creek near Townsville. Robin had two gunshots to the head which had come from a 22 caliber rifle.
1: Sadly, Anita still hasn't been found to this day and remains a missing person. The disappearance of Anita and murder of Robin have haunted the girls' families for years and despite police investigations, an inquest and a reward of $250,000 offered, the case is still cold. Police have not ruled out a potential link between the cases of Gabrielle and Michelle and Robin and Anita. The most well-known case of women going missing hitchhiking on the Gold Coast Highway is the murder of 20-year-old Lorraine Wilson and 19-year-old Wendy Evans. Lorraine Wilson was born on the 21st of July 1954 in Dubbo, New South Wales, and was the youngest of four children in her family.
2: She grew up on a farm and as as a result absolutely loved animals. Her family knew her as being a cheeky, caring girl with a tomboy edge. She came from a tough and hardworking family, with her father being a World War II veteran and her mother being a tough farm woman. Wendy Evans was born in Sydney on the 31st of January 1956 and was the third of five children. She was known to be a very smart girl and got top marks at school. She left high school early to pursue her career.
1: The pair met when they were both training to be nurses at St George's Hospital in Sydney. They both absolutely loved nursing but decided to take some time off to travel in 1974 before recommencing their training. Their travels began with a bus tour which took them through Townsville, Mount Isa, Katherine, Darwin and Alice Springs. After their bus tour the girls spent a couple of days relaxing at Lorraine's rural family home before they decided to go on a road trip taking Lorraine's 1964 Volkswagen Beetle Unfortunately, about an hour into their journey, the car broke down.
2: Lorraine called her parents from a payphone in Brisbane to let them know what had happened. She informed them that the car had broken down on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. Reportedly, Lorraine said to her mother, Mum, please don't lecture me. I've only got three minutes. Lorraine was able to have her car towed into Goondiwindi to a mechanic to have it fixed. Lorraine and Wendy were able to hitchhike the 350 kilometres to Wendy's sister Susan's house, back in Brisbane, arriving safely. The fact that they were able to hitchhike safely many times over the course of their travels gave them a false sense of security.
1: When Lorraine spoke to the mechanic, he let her know that the repairs to her car could take a week or more to complete. As a result of this, Wendy and Lorraine stayed with Susan for the week, taking advantage of their time to go shopping, eating out at restaurants and going out partying by night. Lorraine maintained contact with the mechanic over the course of the week to discuss the cost and duration of the repairs. Eventually she decided it would be easiest for her parents to pick up the car when it was ready and she and Wendy would make their way back to Sydney to start working again on the 10th of October. The girls decided the easiest and cheapest way for them to get from Brisbane to Sydney was going to be to hitchhike.
2: Upon hearing that the girls were considering hitchhiking, both Wendy's sister Susan and Lorraine's mother Betty begged them not to. Susan brought up the double murder of Gabrielle Jank and Michelle Riley the previous year and brought up the fact that the girls were hitchhiking in the same area. She offered to lend them money to take the bus. Wendy joked to Susan, Don't worry, I've got Lorraine with me. She is a judo expert. Both girls giggled hysterically, knowing that Lorraine was by no means a martial arts expert. Neither Susan nor Betty could sway the girls when it came
1: to hitchhiking. Wendy assured Susan they would be careful when selecting which driver they would get in the car with. At approximately 11am on the morning of Sunday, the 6th of October, 1974, Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans set out from Susan's house, each lugging a small vinyl suitcase behind them. They made their way out to the main road where they hoped to catch a lift. Whilst they had told both Betty and Susan that they would be hitchhiking, they hadn't told either exactly which route they would be taking. Six days later, when the, their families hadn't heard from the girls, Betty convinced Lorraine's brother Eric Jr. to call St George's Hospital to check whether the girls had arrived back to work safely.
2: Panic set in when he was told that they hadn't started back at work. Lorraine's aunt then went to the Chermside police station to report the girls missing immediately. Police were able to speak with both the mechanic who had worked on Lorraine's car as well as the person who had given the girls a lift after the car had broken down, but no leads came from this. They also spoke to a young man that Lorraine and Wendy had spent time with while they were staying at Susan's, but again nothing came from this either. There were no confirmed sightings of the girls initially after they left Susan's house, despite the initial police appeals for information.
1: Meanwhile, Lorraine's brother, Eric Jr., had moved his wife and newborn daughter back home to help his parents, Betty and Eric Sr., with the farm while they searched for their daughter. Eric and Lorraine had been very close growing up and he would be one of the key people pushing the case in front of police for years to come. It wouldn't be until the 25th of June 1976 that events would cause information to pour in. An older couple was on a date hiking in Murphy's Creek in the Lockyer Valley region of Queensland when they stumbled across two sets of human remains in a remote clearing. They immediately contacted the police and the area was thoroughly searched by police officers and members of the army.
2: The remains were for the most part intact, although some bones had been spread over an area of 20 by 20 metres. The skeletons had loops of cord tied around each of their ankles and then to each other in a hogtie pattern that was commonly used by pig hunters to secure their kill. As well as the remains... Police also found a number of personal items in the area, including tooth and hairbrushes, clothing, unique jewellery, a cigarette lighter and a transistor radio inscribed with the name Lorraine Wilson. Eric Jr. remembered how the news of his sister's death was delivered to him. Quote, I remember Dad coming across the paddock to meet us as we headed from our cottage to their house with the baby. And I knew before he said a word. He had that thousand-yard stare that soldiers get when they have seen too many awful things. He just wasn't there anymore. Something had broken inside him, and he was never the same again.
1: Like the families of Gabrielle Jank, Michelle Riley, Anita Cunningham, Robin Hohenville-Bartram, Lorraine and Wendy's family were tormented by what had happened to their loved ones. What had the girls been through? And how had they ended up meeting this horrible, unfair fate? Little did the Wilson family know that their unrelenting search for the truth would reveal a dark, seedy underbelly of serial rape, violence and anarchic culture running rampant in the Toowoomba area. Residents of the area had learnt to turn a blind eye to certain behaviour so they wouldn't become the target of violence themselves. Australia would be disturbed to learn how much of Lorraine and Wendy's last night had been witnessed, and yet nobody had intervened in a meaningful way.
2: On the night of the 6th of October 1974, the last day that Lorraine and Wendy were seen, a police officer, Ian Hamilton, was on duty. He received a phone call from the night custodians of the Vale Youth Camp near Toowoomba, who reported hearing a woman screaming near the camp. Officer Hamilton arrived at the camp at approximately 9pm and was taken to an area approximately 80 metres from the camp. The men told him that they had heard a woman screaming for approximately 20 to 30 minutes before they had called him. It wasn't long before Officer Hamilton heard the screaming too, later stating, "'They were the most terrifying and horrendous screams I had ever heard, blood-curdling.'"
1: Sadly, Despite hearing the horrible screams, neither Officer Hamilton nor the night Custodians could determine where the screams were coming from. It was a windy night and this made the direction of the screams hard to detect. The three men searched the area for 30 to 40 minutes, but eventually the screaming stopped and so did the search for answers. At the time of this incident, the police officer didn't realise there were two women missing as Lorraine and Wendy had only left home that morning. However, Officer Hamilton believes that as soon as he heard the news of the two missing women, he took the information from that night straight to the Homicide Squad.
2: Officer Hamilton also believed that he gave the Homicide Squad information about a gang that was operating in the area who were known to commit frequent sexual assaults in the town. The gang consisted mainly of members of the Lorry and the Hilton families, who were bonded by marriage, blood and a shared taste for violence. They were known to abduct and rape women in the Toowoomba area. After the bodies of Lorraine and Wendy were found at Murphy's Creek, a resident from the area contacted police with information. He was a worker for a local feed company and remembered that on the 1st of November 1974, he was in the area where the remains were found, looking for three cattle that had escaped.
1: He was not far from where the girls were found when he smelt a strong odour. At the time he thought maybe one of the cattle had died, but upon searching he didn't see anything. He didn't think about it again until Lorraine and Wendy were found. The worker was not the only person who was triggered to call the police after the girls remains were found. In July 1976, an anonymous male caller rang police to report his knowledge that two of the Hilton brothers were known to pick up very young, school-aged girls in Toowoomba for sex, even if it wasn't consensual. The caller also told police that he knew a girl
2: who had told him that the Hilton brothers had restrained and raped her after she had rejected their advances. Then the calls started pouring in from people who believed that in hindsight, they may have seen something the night the girls went missing. A couple named Mr. and Mrs. Bircher recalled to police that their daughter had been in hospital in Toowoomba around the time the girls had gone missing in 1974. The couple recalled a Saturday night they believed to be the 6th of October when they were driving home from the hospital. They saw a male and a female struggling on the side of the road.
1: The couple were standing next to a pale-coloured EJ Holden on the left side of the road, The woman yelled out to them for help as they passed by, but unfortunately they didn't stop. Mrs Bircher looked back once they had passed and saw the man trying to force the woman into the car. Inside the car she saw another two men and a woman. A bus driver who had been working on the day the women went missing also contacted the police with some information.
2: He believed that he might have seen the women towards the start of their journey in Oxley, He remembered seeing two women standing on the side of the road with their luggage when a light green 1963 Holden EK sedan pulled up in front of them. The car appeared to be driven by youths that looked to be around 20 years of age. The bus driver saw the women get into the back of the car, but nothing came from either of these leads. Another driver failed to intervene due to having children in the car. One of the most devastating leads came from Mrs. Norma Spurling, who lived at the top of the Toowoomba Range Road.
1: She was in her house around sunset when she heard a woman calling out from the back door of her house. She went to the laundry and saw a young woman. The woman told Mrs. Spurling that she needed to get away from some people who were forcing her to come with them. Despite Mrs. Spurling's offer to bring the girl in and call the police, the young woman, now known to be Lorraine Wilson declined not wanting to leave her friend and walk back to her attackers not long after the young woman left the house. Mrs. Spurling heard a woman screaming and looked out the window. She
2: immediately saw the girl from her laundry struggling with a man who was forcing her into a car. She noted another man and another woman in the back who also appeared to be struggling. There is also information suggesting Wendy may may have escaped the attackers at one point and knocked on the door of a nearby house but would not leave her friend alone. It is clear that neither girl was going to leave her friend to deal with the terror by themselves. The first inquest into Lorraine and Wendy's deaths was held in Toowoomba on the 20th of June 1985 before their bodies had been
1: found. There was little evidence and no witnesses called It was at that point their disappearance was labelled a homicide, and that they were murdered by persons unknown. A final inquest into the girls' murders was held in 2012 and 2013, and this was when the suspected killers were revealed to the public. We will talk more about this inquest later in the episode. On the 5th of May 1976, not long before Lorraine and Wendy's remains were found, another woman disappeared. Margaret Rosewarn, or Marg to friends and family, was a 19-year-old free spirit from Queensland's Gold Coast.
2: She was a frequent hitchhiker, like many of the other free-spirited youths from the area. She loved going to the beach and hanging with her friends, and was largely unambitious, enjoying taking her life as it came. On the 5th of May, 1976, she was due to head to a friend's farewell party in Burley Head's, which is approximately 15 kilometres away from Surfer's Paradise. It was about 9pm when Marg decided it was time to hitch a ride to the party. Her flatmate had been going to drive her but had become unwell.
1: She wasn't nervous to hitchhike. She did this all the time. Sadly, Marg never made it to the party. Marg's sister Brenda recalled getting a call from her parents to come home from her first year of uni, quote, when I walked in the door, I remember having a really uneasy feeling. I asked my parents where Marg was, and they told me she'd vanished. It got worse from there. On May 8th, Marg's empty handbag was found near Broad Beach Surf Lifesaving Club. On the 21st of May, 1976, a couple were inspecting an overgrown block of land for sale in West Burley when they stumbled across Marg's remains.
2: Her dress had been torn from her body and her underwear was missing. She was battered and bruised and could only be identified using her dental records. Police described her murder as the work of a sadistic fiend. About 10 metres from Mark's body, near the road, there were coins scattered, suggesting that maybe a struggle had taken place there. There had been heavy rain on the Gold Coast, which had wiped out anything
1: that forensics would have had to work with. There was nothing significant in that area. Police noted that the skull injuries to Marg were very, very similar to those on Gabrielle Jank and Michelle Riley with former police commissioner Ron Redmond stating All three girls died from massive head injuries. All had been hitchhiking and all the murders tie in geographically. Following Marg's murder, police minister Russ Hines publicly stated There have been a number of incidences where young persons who have hitchhiked on roads have been given a ride and subsequently murdered. Tragically, many young people, confident of their own invulnerability, will continue to hitchhike no matter how appalling the risks. Sadly, Marg's parents died not knowing what had happened to her, and the question remains, was her murder linked to any or all of the other six beautiful young women? All seven women were under 21 years of age. All were hitchhiking on the Gold Coast or Brisbane areas. All suffered serious head injuries. All were thought to be sexually assaulted and all were left crudely with little effort to hide their bodies.
2: Now back to the final inquest into Lorraine and Wendy's murders. The Hilton and Laurie families were front and centre focus of the inquest with many women who were not connected giving evidence about being raped and sexually assaulted by members of the two families. Some of the incidences had been previously reported to police and some had not. Many of the women were very young and vulnerable at the time of their rapes. Many had already come from abusive and neglectful families and being hurt by another human being was not a foreign concept.
1: The inquest revealed that members of the Laurie and Hilton families were known to take young women, either consensually or not, into bushland around Toowoomba and force them into sex or sex acts. Violence was either threatened or carried out if the women struggled. A woman named Anne was 19 years old in 1974. She recalled accepting a lift from a man she knew as Shorty Laurie and another unknown man. The car she got into was a light-coloured sedan.
2: Despite offering to take her home, the men took her to a remote sports field behind a high school. They stopped the car and the unknown man got out. Shorty locked the doors and raped her, before getting out and allowing the other man to rape her. They then took her back to her home and dropped her off across the street. Anne told her dad what had happened and he encouraged her to speak to police, which she did.
1: Her clothes were taken and she was medically examined. After that, police never got in touch with her again. Another woman named Gail was 16 years old in 1969. She recalls times when she had come into contact with Ian, Gordon and Shorty Laurie. She told the inquest, They'd get you in the car and offered to give you a lift home, but you would never get home. When you got in the car, there were no car door handles inside or window winders. And when you asked why, they would say because they are repairing the doors. That's why we couldn't get out of the car. And then they would take you out to the Highfields Road between Toowoomba and Highfields. There there used to be a bush paddock out out there, and then then in the meantime they would give you alcohol until you were drunk and you couldn't hold yourself up. You were so relaxed. You were nearly paralysed with the warm beer. That's when they would take advantage of you. They took off my pants... I remember seeing them pour alcohol on their old fellow, so that's penis, before they would rape me. I don't know why they would rape me. They took turns in raping me. I can't remember how many times I was raped by them and the others.
2: A cousin of the Hilton and Laurie families, Desmond, had revealed to police officer Senior Sergeant Kerry Johnson that around the time of the murders of Wendy and Lorraine, Alan Shorty Laurie and Alan Ungi Laurie, had told him, quote, they'd given two girls a good hiding down the. Actually, they didn't say down Murphy's Creek. They just said that they had given two girls a hiding down the bottom of the range." Desmond told Sergeant Johnson that he had taken this information to mean that they had done the same thing they did every weekend, raping girls and leaving them out there. Desmond also recalled seeing bloodstains in the back of Donny Laurie's green Holden. He said it looked like someone or something had been dragged along the back seat of the car. When he had approached Donnie, he reportedly saw him washing blood off his hands.
1: Desmond also told police that suspect Donnie had also stolen one of the girl's rings and sold it for beer at a Toowoomba hotel. Desmond recalled a conversation he had with a man named Larry Charles after the murders who claimed that the attack on the women began when they rejected sexual advances from Jimmy O'Neill. According to Desmond, Donnie Laurie hit one of the girls and said, There you go, Jimmy, you can have your turn. Desmond said that was the beginning of a night of rape and assault on the two women before they were killed. A number of other witnesses were called forward with sightings that were thought to be Wendy and Lorraine around the time of their disappearances.
2: Farm machinery salesman Melvin Oliver saw two women and a man off the side of the road one afternoon in Toowoomba. One of the women had her hands tied behind her back and the other was in the process of having her hands tied up. Melvin thought that he was witnessing a prank taking place so he didn't call the police until after the women's bodies were found. Another man Robert Steeler remembers driving in the area around that time when he came upon a faded green 1964 Holden sedan. He saw a man that he knew, Wayne Hilton, forcing a young woman into the back seat and another woman struggling near the front passenger door.
1: Steeler knew that Wayne Hilton was a violent man and, scared for his own safety, he didn't stop. A woman named Edith O'Neill was an acquaintance of the Laurie family and had shared a flat with Donnie Laurie and his wife back in 1974. She recalled seeing Donnie and Wayne Hilton coming home one morning after spending the night out. She recalled them cleaning out the boot of the pale green car and Wayne removing the carpet from the car. When she asked him what he was doing, he reportedly said, mind your own business.
2: She recalled seeing a large stain that she believed to be blood on the carpet. In addition, an associate of Donnie Laurie, Albert Gavin, told police that when Donnie was on his deathbed, he confessed to the murders of Lorraine and Wendy. A forensic scientist, Sergeant Donna Stewart, spoke at the inquest and shared her findings. Although much of the forensic evidence had either degraded or been disposed of, there was some cord remaining that had been wrapped around the women. She was able to trace the cord back to a K.R. Bacon factory in Darling Downs.
1: This was the same K.R. factory where both Wayne Hilton and Alan Shorty Laurie had worked in the 70s. At the end of the inquest, State Coroner Mr. Michael Barnes found that it was more likely than not the girls were abducted and murdered by members of the Hilton and Laurie families and associates. Seven members of the families and associates were named at the inquest of which four had already died. Two of them testified at inquest, Terence James O'Neill and Alan Laurie responded no or I don't remember to every question they were asked. The court heard that if Wayne Hilton had have been alive at the time of the inquest he would have been arrested and charged with the murders. But unfortunately, there was not enough evidence to arrest and charge the other men implicated in the murders.
2: It is a shock to learn that groups like this operated in Australia, and that nobody has been charged with these crimes. Although we most likely know what happened to Lorraine and Wendy, justice definitely wasn't done. And of course, the question still remains. Was the same group of men implicated in Wendy and Lorraine's murders responsible for the murders of the other five women? Gabrielle Jank, Michelle Riley, Anita Cunningham, Robin Hohenville-Bartram, and Margaret Rosewan. If you have any information about any of these cases, please call Crimestoppers on 1800 333 000. That's 1800 333 000. Our thoughts go out to the families and friends of Gabrielle Jank, Michelle Riley, Anita Cunningham, Margaret Rosewarne, Wendy Evans, and Lorraine Wilson. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Until next time, please stay safe.